You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. While we are focusing on Ukraine and wondering how it would shape China's future actions against Taiwan, a Chinese spy balloon was shot down by an F-22 aircraft. Senators Marco Rubio and Mark Warner introduced bills to force the executive branch to place TikTok under restrictive sanctions that would effectively block the China-based social media platform owned by the parent company ByteDance. In an America still thinking about Russia's efforts to interfere with the 2016 presidential election, or thinking about Hitler's efforts to influence the United States not to join the fight in World War II, The idea that China, oppressors of Uyghurs, a country that for weeks disappeared their Jeff Bezos, Alibaba magnate Jack Ma, for the slightest criticism of the government there, a fear rose that China could use TikTok to sow discord or influence Americans to think of China as some kind of wonderful. We know that the Nazis did manage to influence many in America to think that Nazism and the Nazis were benign. And Russia managed some persuasion. But is China even good at soft power? Have China's efforts had any efficacy in the past? Do we really know? Well, I don't know. But I thought I would ask somebody who knows a lot about this. Josh Kurlancic is the author of an excellent book, Beijing's Global Media Offensive, China's Uneven Campaign to Influence Asia and the World. Josh is a senior fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's the author of five additional books. Josh, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about history, because that's one of the things that you lay out in your book very clearly. Where has China concentrated its efforts, historically speaking? Well, the book looks at where China is trying to influence other countries, domestic societies and politics. Historically, that was mostly focused, especially when China was weaker in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s on China's near neighborhood. And so in these times when China was weaker, its economy was still growing, its military power was still growing, it mostly focused on its near neighborhood, Taiwan, Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, which was still first in that period of British colony and then part of China, but under one country, two systems. And to some extent, some other countries around China, South Korea. And then in the last 10 years or so, China has really expanded its influence efforts much more extensively into much farther ranging areas, Australia, New Zealand, North America, Africa, Europe, all all sorts of places. What do China's foreign influence efforts look like as compared to, say, Russia? In the book, I don't describe every foreign influence effort. I mean, traditional espionage, or what we would call hard power, the use of direct economic or military coercion, which China uses a lot of economic coercion to influence other countries. But I talk about instead somewhat slightly more subtle forms of influence. One would be the media, China using its big state media channels. One is called China Global Television Network. One is called China Radio International. And then there's a big newswire, Xinhua. The use of Chinese language newspapers around the world, which have almost exclusively been taken over by pro-Beijing owners. There's very little independent Chinese language press left in the world. There are a few places where there's some like Taiwan, but for example, in the United States, there really isn't. Third, I talk about China and its use of 
building sort of the pipes of information, like the networks of information. That includes the hard infrastructure, like 5G infrastructure that is building in a lot of developing countries, but which has been stopped from building in a lot of wealthier developed countries. It includes also the spread of China's satellite TV networks and definitely includes China's two globally powerful social media platforms, WeChat and TikTok. And then I talk about what I call kind of old-fashioned influence, which is just things that didn't come up with internet or et cetera, but have been around forever. They're not necessarily espionage, but paying politicians to do your bidding. There's an inquiry going on right now in Canada, for example, that China interfered directly in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections in Canada. Prime Minister Trudeau has commissioned an inquiry. So that old-fashioned influence would include paying politicians, spreading money around universities and think tanks to take a more pro-Beijing position. China has increasingly become more aggressive and have pro-Beijing forces take over Chinese student associations at universities all over the world, Chinese diaspora groups. There was actually an interesting incident a few months ago at George Washington University where a man who was doing kind of graffiti art paintings all over campus, criticizing Xi Jinping and the, and the Chinese Communist Party. And a group of sort of pro-Beijing students went to the president and other administrators. So there became this like blending of woke politics and Chinese influence. And they said that this graffiti art was harmful to them as Chinese people and made them feel threatened and et cetera. And of course, the universities are you know terrified of hearing things like this. So the president told the guy to take these all down, but they were not critical of Chinese people. They were simply critical of Xi Jinping, who is an authoritarian leader and an authoritarian political party. So then the university got slammed in the Washington Post and other places for this. So then they backtracked completely. And the president released a letter basically saying they hadn't really looked into this at all. They didn't even understand what the guy was doing. They were wrong to silence him. And he's free to put his anti-Xi Jinping protest posters up all over campus. So it got like caught up in this interesting combination of trends all at the same time. Well, I'll have to look for that when I ride my bicycle through the campus on my way to work. That's a good breakdown of exactly sort of the the different efforts that they're making and different media that they're trying. But they haven't really been that successful, have they, over well, time? successful in some ways and unsuccessful in other ways. Of the three big state media networks, the TV channel, CGTN, the radio network, CRI, haven't really gotten a lot of viewers or readers in most places they attempted to hire a lot of quality journalists like 10, eight years ago in all sorts of places, including the U.S., but they were unable to really pull off gaining an audience simply because they just remain kind of turgid propaganda and they're not interesting. By contrast, Xinhua has gained a pretty broad audience, and the reason that is is because Xinhua's a newswire, so they signed content sharing agreements with local outlets all over the world. And so in places like Thailand or Malaysia, Xinhua copy, just like Associated Press or Bloomberg copy, gets translated into local languages and makes it into the local news outlets in the country, including the best news outlets. Xinhua is increasingly attractive to editors in a lot of places because it's cheaper than the other news wires are free. So Xinhua has been a huge success for China. They're essentially getting a propaganda wire translated into local languages and presented as news in quality outlets all over the world, not yet in the U.S. or some other major democracies, but certainly in a lot of places. Gaining control of virtually the entire Chinese language media sphere in the world is certainly a major success. And they have had significant success in some parts of the world building out the information pipes 
And clearly, every major democracy is going to have to figure out what to do with their two huge social media platforms, particularly TikTok, which is going to be the most popular app in the world and is a huge conundrum for every liberal democratic leader about what to do about it. Its parent company, ByteDance, is sort of pseudo-based in Singapore, but really based in China. The Chinese government has a, itself has a seat on ByteDance's board. ByteDance's CEO is kind of a front man. I don't think that he really is wielding the power behind it. And even with servers having users' data exclusively in the country where the users are, there have been numerous examples of data being extracted back to China. So... I don't think that TikTok is necessarily some like devilish thing that's going to convince Americans one way or another. I mean, most of TikTok is either inane stuff or et cetera, but there is a news component and it is incredibly popular. So every leader is going to have to figure out how to deal with that. But overall, they've had mixed effectiveness. And then you combine that with their really poor sort of formal diplomacy, like what their actual diplomats are saying and doing, which is often really aggressive, overly aggressive, and just rude. Their support for Putin in the Ukraine war, which actually hurt them a lot in Central and Eastern Europe, where they had built really good relationships with most of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe, they kind of ruined that by supporting Putin. And then their increasingly aggressive military behavior in parts of Asia just scared a lot of countries in the region. So you put all that together, and it's... It's a mixed bag, certainly in major liberal democracies. The image of China is really, really poor right now. In some developing world countries, it's more mixed, but they haven't exactly like won the world over. The final thing I would say about that is part of China's appeal, going back to the 2007, 2008 financial crisis, they have had a model of growth and development that's supposedly superior to that of liberal democracy, which hasn't exactly had its best last 15 years. And that China's sort of managerial governance, authoritarian capitalism was superior to the chaos and populism and financial mismanagement of liberal democracies. And that was dented somewhat by China's own struggles with handling COVID initially and then handling how to get out of its zero COVID policies. That's also hurt them. They hold, if you go back actually and look at the beginning of COVID, You'll see a lot of prominent American commentators, famous commentators writing about how basically kind of praising China, essentially managerial governance, almost praising their authoritarianism for handling COVID. But in the end, they sort of got stuck because of that. Yeah, they've experienced widespread protests even. And I wonder how you react to that, as well as the fact that even groups of elderly people were protesting well, there are always protests in China. It's not like even though China's an authoritarian state, it's become more authoritarian under Xi Jinping, much more authoritarian. It's gone from a kind of consensus authoritarianism under the previous three leaders to really one-man rule. There are always protests. They just tend to be in recent years in uh, rural areas, and the protests are against local officials and they get shut down. I think the failed zero COVID strategy kind of brought Chinese people together by putting them all in the same boat, which wasn't isn't really actually normally the case. China is an incredibly unequal country. Its in, levels of inequality are staggering, in part because if you are born in a big city, a wealthy big city like Shanghai, you are born with all of these rights to go to certain schools, etc., to live in certain places that it's, if you're born in the countryside, you, you don't have. 
But the zero COVID strategy is something that actually brought together people in a way that isn't really very common. So the protests spread and involved a broad range of places. China is the most powerful authoritarian state in the world and the most extensive surveillance state in the world. And China is not Russia. It is not, a, I mean, it is demographically declining just because of the one child policy, but you know, it's not a place where men are dying at age 60, where state and society are collapsing. So the protests were, you know, I think a valuable reminder that people in China aren't blindly accepting Xi Jinping's rule, but at the same time, I don't think Xi Jinping is going anywhere anytime soon. Right. He, and he has just consolidated his power and appointed loyalists to a lot of positions and kept those who probably have had to restate their oath of loyalty, as my guess. What would be China's reasons for wielding this soft power and how do they differ from a country like Russia? What is their purpose in doing this? I'm not really sure Russia is that interested in wielding soft power. I mean, soft power is like the power of a, attraction, like you're trying to get other countries to view you favorably, et cetera, and then somehow leads potentially to publics or leaders being favorably inclined to your policies. I guess Russia, has, to some extent, before the Ukraine war, had some elements of that. Vladimir Putin, I guess, tried to appeal in some ways as sort of like a leader of traditional conservatism in some ways. Russia was more focused on what you would call sharp power, purposefully trying to undermine other societies, purposefully denigrating democracy, purposefully trying to turn other countries' societies against each other. China has increasingly embraced that approach too, although not as aggressively as Russia. In the last few years, China has begun to take broader swipes such just the idea of democracy itself and more aggressively highlight the problems in democratic societies, not so much try to stoke divisions the way Russia has online. But what China would try to gain through its soft power, particularly promoting its model, would be the idea that the more favorable views you would have of China, the easier it would be for China to perpetuate its foreign policy. If uh, people liked its model, then they might copy it and see it as an attractive alternative to the U.S., etc. Uh, China has also backed a lot of this up with, you know, the big massive lending program, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is something that Russia couldn't even conceive of. You know, Russia is a declining state that has one export that no one really seeks to be like Russia, whereas China at least before Xi Jinping started cracking down more on a lot of the big private sector companies, China was a state with, you know, continual high growth rates, major global giants, brand names. Even now, even with Xi Jinping's crackdown, there are major Chinese companies that are huge players in the American market in everything from fashion to obviously the social media platforms, et cetera. So they want to promote the idea that China is innovative, and they also want to sort of promote the idea that eventually China's going to become the most powerful country in the world, and so you better, you know, get, get on board. One of the things that China lacks in terms of soft power, soft power isn't just only come from the state, it comes a lot from the private sector. So some of it, China does have some private sector soft power, but historically, a fair amount of the soft power of the United States came from actors that weren't in any way controlled by the state. Hollywood or musicians, athletes, celebrities. China doesn't really have that. I mean, they, they do have a lot of famous artists and writers. They just put a lot of them in jail or force them out of the country. So they lack some of that cultural soft power that, for example, 
South Korea has now minted in spades. Interesting observation. How have they adapted to these efforts? Because they haven't always been successful. I know you write a lot about their efforts to sort of influence elections in Malaysia and that sort of boomeranged. But what are they learning from these things? And and do you have any predictions for how they might change and adapt that would be valuable to our listeners to consider? Well, I think that Xi Jinping was wrecking and the leadership was recognizing that this very hyper aggressive wolf warrior is what they call it diplomacy. It's very brusque style wasn't really working. And then appointed as foreign minister, the former Chinese ambassador to Washington, who is definitely not a kind of hyper aggressive partisan type. He's more of a traditional Chinese diplomat that you would have seen 15 or 20 years ago talking more about the places where Chinese and American interests overlap. There's going to be no future strategy on climate change without China. The U.S. and China have huge interests on The U.S. has huge interest in persuading China not to go further in supporting Vladimir Putin than they already have. I mean, the U.S. has overlapping with China on a whole wide range of trade issues and many other issues. China just brokered a rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran. China and the U.S. increasingly are going to have overlapping, for good or bad, issues in regions well outside of Asia, not just the Middle East, but other areas. So I think there was some recognition, you know, and some... But they then they sort of snap back into a kind of more hyper aggressive pose. Some of that is them. Some of that is that Washington right now is at its probably most hawkish toward China that, you know, it's been since the McCarthy period. And that's a bipartisan thing. There's reason to be certainly concerned about a whole wide range of things that China is doing. There's also reason to question about whether some of the things that the U.S. is doing is are needlessly you have to ask about what the goal is and whether they make sense as policy. And we're getting a little bit far away from what is sort of my main area, but like Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan. Okay. So is Kevin McCarthy going to Taiwan just because Nancy Pelosi went there? Now he's a speaker, so he wants to go there. I'm not sure what the goal policy wise is. The environment on both sides is increasingly hawkish and and then you add in the fact that, yeah, I'm 46. Most Americans, you know, like my age, our age, they think of war as like a thing that people volunteer for to join the army. And then they serve in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And there's no memory of a war, like unless you're 100 years old, like World War II, where two major powers went to war and millions of people died, you know, and the entire world economy like collapsed and et cetera, et cetera. And so that lack of remembrance is a major problem. Yeah. And it does seem right now, we talked about this in an earlier cast, that in an era of really hyper-performative politics, that everyone appears to be trying to demonstrate to their constituents that they are really going to be tough on China, whatever that may mean. But I thought uh, McCarthy had agreed to meet with the president of Taiwan in California. I don't, I'm not sure he may end up going to Taiwan, but I thought that he had Finally, back off of that. All that, even if you meet Tsai in California, that's provocative to them. They're not going to shoot missiles at California, but it's interesting because there's so little bipartisanship left, and China is like the one last issue that there is a lot of bipartisan agreement on. Like the new China Mm -hmm. committee that has been set up in Congress is really genuinely bipartisan. It's also extremely hawkish. So it seems like it's an area that there is some degree of performative politics. There is a degree of real concern. I mean, China is engaged in very problematic actions in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, and around Taiwan. 
as well as engaged in really problematic economic espionage that, you know, other countries, there are other countries that historically have engaged in some level of that, France, for example, but not countries that are not our our ally and not on this level, you know, particularly within the GOP, where you have a fair number of people who are become more reluctant to criticize Russia, they want to seem hawkish on certain defense issues. And since they're become reluctant, for whatever reason, to criticize Russia, all the fires channeled on China. Looking at it from the outside, it does look like China is definitely on a long term campaign to upend the world order. I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, China's benefited enormously from the world order. If the world order was to collapse or change, I think Russia would like to upend aspects of the world order. I don't think China is necessarily at the same level. I mean, like China needs things from the world that in a way that Russia doesn't. It's true that Xi Jinping has withdrawn somewhat, but I mean, still, maybe certainly to upend the regional order in Asia, I would say that to upend the world order, I'm not really necessarily convinced about that. Maybe find a way to replace the strength of the dollar to avoid sanctions, maybe assert itself diplomatically more as the world's peacemaker, that kind of thing to sort of supplant the United States in those roles. Definitely to supplant the United States regionally, maybe globally. I mean, it's going to be a long time before they could replace the dollar because their concurrency isn't really even fully convertible in most places anyway. They have some efforts at creating a digital currency. They themselves are holding an enormous stock of dollars. And, you know, it were the United States and China to really truly decouple economically, which, you know, things are heading in that direction somewhat, but to really and truly, it would be a huge blow to both the economies. I mean, to some of the biggest companies in China and some of the biggest companies in the US, like Apple. I mean, Apple has sort of made some very mild feints towards backing up its supply chains with by building some new operations in India and other places. But basically, like Apple can't exist without its massive, massive, massive operation in, in China. And I don't see, you know, that they have really, they're just going to go with whatever happens, basically. And there are Chinese companies like that. One of the reasons that I think that ha- has made the Xi Jinping administration so angry about the Biden administration's really tough semi policies on restricting semiconductors and trying to convince other countries that are the makers of the world's most advanced chips is that China is still intensely dependent on the world for a lot of those things. So definitely upend the regional order, be a bigger player in world affairs and a wide range of things. I'm not sure yet upend the entire world order, but maybe a long-term goal. Let's go to the issue of TikTok. For some reason, it just permeates everything right now. Based on what you've seen in terms of how they've executed these foreign influence campaigns, have you thought for a moment about how they might use TikTok if they chose to and what that might look like? Or if that's outside of any playbook you think they really have or or would use? I mean, there has been some user data that has made its way back to China. So there's reason for concern. There are countries that ban TikTok. I mean, India just banned TikTok. TikTok is such a huge, messy apparatus that it would be pretty challenging to utilize TikTok in some way to extract all this data, just given the way that the sheer scale of it and how it's utilized. You know, I definitely don't think that people working in the government should have TikTok, should be on their phones or should be using it at all and or in the military. The Biden administration needs to come up with some plan to ensure that users' data stays in the U.S., on servers in the U.S. and that there's no way that can be extracted in any way and there's no backdoors. Other democracies are going to want the same thing. 
if if the, your question is whether the Chinese government or Xi Jinping is going to use TikTok as some sort of maps of propaganda campaign, I think right. TikTok is too anarchic, really, to do that. I, I think it would be challenging. They could do some of the same things that they try to do or that Russia has done successfully on Twitter, use TikTok to boast about certain things that China does and denigrate democracy and divide people, et cetera. They could have some success with that. But as in terms of like a giant campaign to use TikTok as just this huge Trojan horse, I, it's a little bit too anarchic for that. But definitely all liberal democracies need to have some assurances backed up by actual data and their own actual, uh, not just laws, but their own actual data showing that users' data is staying on servers in their country and there is no way for it to be exported back to China. Okay, so you would you're focusing on the user data issue, and and I take your point that you don't really see how you could sort of infiltrate this unending TikTok feed to then deliver messages that China's benign and and maybe a great place. No, I think you could deliver some messages. I just the same way that you could deliver messages on Twitter, et cetera. I just don't think that I think TikTok is kind of more even more anarchic than these other places. It would be hard to have a coordinated propaganda campaign on TikTok, but it's possible definitely to use it to share certain messages about China and to use it to denigrate other places and to try to influence people. Sure. I mean, I think there needs to be a certain degree of digital literacy that is lacking in the United States and most other countries. And that applies to not only China on TikTok, but all sorts of other you know, problematic actors on TikTok and on all other social media platforms. Unfortunately, the major social media platforms are going in the other direction and reducing their content moderation. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate getting your thoughts on this and I enjoyed reading the book. I thought it was very informative and I would definitely recommend to others to do the same. And we're really glad that we finally got to talk to you. I know we've been trying to talk to you for a long time and we finally uh, were able to sit down. So I'm glad you came tonight. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. My guest tonight has been Josh Kurlancic. He's the author of Beijing's Global Media Offensive. You can find a place to buy Josh's books and the book in the notes to our cast. We do recommend that you read it and educate yourself. Podcasts are great. Tweets are great. But we also believe in long form acquisition of information and thoughtfulness on the part of our listeners. Thanks for tuning in to NSLT. Be sure to share this episode with a friend. Reclaim your attention span by listening to our long form podcasts intended to bring you real law, real history, real news, and not sound bites or clickbait. Send us comments and feedback. We'll welcome those. For now, you can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec, but you can also send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. Our producer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with all the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.